Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you, as always. So glad to be back with you. Now, if you are a regular listener, you know that we have not been able to record new episodes for quite some time. This past summer uh, has been very hectic, even in the springtime, going into the fall. But man, we are so excited about what God is doing. Some great, great stories. Hopefully at some point, I can maybe tie in some of these stories, kind of bring some of them in. Uh, as we go through a chronological teaching of the Gospels. But I got to say, man, I am just so excited to be back here in the studio recording another episode as we dive into the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. So it's such a joy to be back with you guys. And I just want to thank you for your commitment, not just your faithfulness to uh, this podcast, but your love for God's Word. I am just so thrilled with some of the conversations I've been having with many of you as I've been traveling and the more that people are finding out about our podcast, you know, the more excited they get, not just reading my books or hearing me give a sermon or a lecture, uh, you know, biblical perspective on Christianity or whatever, apologetically or philosophically, but to just spend time together to study God's word and to really sit at the feet of our Savior. I mean, it's, it's just a beautiful time. So I want you to know how much I look forward to this time I pray, as always, that it is a continual blessing to your growth in the faith as well as your intimacy with Jesus Christ. As always, if you have a question or if there's something on your heart, if there's something we can do to pray for you in your marriage or with your children, a situation is arising. If you yourself are in ministry and you have a lot of doubt or you're struggling uh, with depression or you just need someone uh, to hear you objectively, uh, to speak into your life, please know that we are available. Our contact information is on our website, standstrongministries.org. You can check out um, all the things that we have available, but you can also send us an email, info at standstrongministries.org. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have a question, a prayer request, or you're struggling through some things and you need some advice, please know that we are readily available to reach out to those various different needs here on the podcast. Now, with that being said, we have a lot to cover. So I'm going to do my best, as always, to try to cover as much of the content that we have on the podcast today. Today is podcast 57, and the title is Jesus Goes to the Castaways. So we're going to be looking for Matthew chapter 5 all the way to chapter, excuse me, Matthew 15 all the way to chapter 16, verse 12, cross-referencing that to Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, all the way to chapter 8, verse 21. Now, if you recall, as you're going through the chronological teaching, Jesus returns from Gennesaret after performing many miracles. If you look back in Matthew chapter 14, verses 34 and 36, and he was rebuking the Pharisees and the scribes over their various different traditions. And we look back in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. So check out the previous podcast that we, got, we cover that. Now today, we're going to see that he arrives into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is important to note because if you know anything about these particular areas, this is where the Gentiles live. Jesus right now, my friends, is going to be spending some time with the Gentiles. Now, the whole theme of our discussion today is about Jesus engaging with people who are rejected, who are castaways, who are poor, 
who the, the society or the more refined, the more popular, the more wealthy, the more famous people, if you will, have nothing to do with. And yet Jesus spends time. Matter of fact, he goes a great length uh, and he takes his disciples with him to reach this population of people. So it was very difficult to get to. So it was not convenient at all. But this shows the intentionality and the love that Jesus has. So let's jump right into it, starting with the Canaanite woman who has a demonized daughter. Now I'm going to read Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28, and then we'll jump and cross-reference that in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. It says here in verse 21 of Matthew 15, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now here's what's interesting. If you jump back to Mark chapter 7, we're told that Jesus enters a house and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So somehow this woman finds out about him. And it, we're told in verse 25 of Mark chapter 7, she hears about Jesus and she came and she fouled down at his feet. So she's not shouting outside this house. She found him and came directly to him and falls down at his feet. And so now the disciples, of course, they're tired, they're discouraged, they're begging Jesus. So they're arguing and they're trying to plead with him to get rid of this woman. And he answers now Matthew 15 verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. So you see this gesture again that she continues to beg before him. And he answered in verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, when you look at Mark chapter 7, verse 29, Mark adds these words from Jesus, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. In verse 30 of Mark 7, And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. All right, so the district of Tyre and Sidon we see here, uh, Tyre was a, was a major city in the Syrian Phoenician, which is the northwest part of Gennesaret. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 9 through 24, Elijah healed a woman's child in this exact location. So keep that in mind. Here you have thousands of rejected Canaanites. If you go back to the Israeli conquest that moved into these parts of the land. And so Jesus, when he left in Mark 7 a while ago from the religious leaders after he rebuked them, he's going to this place where this woman is begging him to heal his daughter. So we're told that this Canaanite woman, she's pleading, she's asking Jesus for mercy. Now, remember, the Canaanites, they were enemies of the Jews in the Old Testament. And the Phoenicians, the, these were people who were descendants of paganism, of the Semites. So this woman somehow finds out that Jesus is in her region. Of course, shocks her probably because a lot of reports are going around about who Jesus was. This miracle worker was he really the Messiah. But notice how she refers to him. She refers to Jesus as the son of David. That is a messianic title. If you go back to Matthew 9, 27 with the two blind men in Matthew 12, 22 through 23 with the demon-oppressed man, they all refer to Jesus as the son of David. So that's a messianic title that 
has been used many times in the course of Jesus's ministry. And it shows that people not only understood who he was, but declared that he was the Messiah, even though the religious leaders did not believe that. So this phrase, have mercy on me, shows the humility and the desperation that this mother had for her daughter. She's interceding on behalf of her daughter who's being severely oppressed, we're told, by a demon. Now, the description in Greek is that the daughter is painfully, wrongly, badly possessed or tormented by this evil spirit. So given the severity and the desperation of this woman, in Matthew 15, 23, it almost seems that Jesus is a little bit rude, if you will, because he doesn't even respond to this woman. She's pleading, she's at his feet, and the disciples are saying, get rid of this woman. So it seems, again, that that he's being rude, but the reality is Jesus is testing this woman. He's He's testing her to see how resilient or persistent that she is. Now, obviously, we see in the passage of Scripture that she is very resilient and she's very persistent, and it's driving the disciples crazy. It points out, my friends, the fact that we as Christians are not to care what other people think, but we are to continue to be persistent, just like we talked about in previous podcasts when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, to ask, to seek, to knock, to be persistent, to not give up. And so when you put this all in perspective, we see... A lot going on here, and yet Jesus is closing in on this woman, and he's hearing what she is saying to him, and so he responds in the midst of this, not responding to the disciples to tell them to shut up, but rather in Matthew 15, 24, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. However, he came intentionally. He climbed through the mountains, through the Sea of Galilee to cross Lebanese area and then he descends 2,000 feet to this broken lost terrain and yet he's saying I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel so again he's testing her he intentionally came here I think not only to heal the Gentiles but also to show the the disciples themselves the love and compassion that many of these people had that they that they themselves as Jewish people have rejected for so many centuries now we're told in Matthew 5:25 that this woman cries out, in response to what Jesus said and said, Lord, help me. So this woman realizes the stakes and she humbles herself even more so before Jesus. She is totally determined to prevail in her requests. Verse 26, he responds, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, again, this could be a mockery. This could be a put down. And instead she says, you know what? Even sometimes the dogs have to take a little bit of the crumbs. What was happening here was a derogatory term. Easily could have set her off to say, you know what, you're right. I'm just a loser. I'm a Canaanite. I'm a Phoenician person that you Jewish rabbis don't even care about Jews in general. And yet rather than her take that as an insult, even though Jesus didn't mean it to be an insult, she willingly accepts this status that she's in and says, you know what? I know I'm nothing special, but I will take whatever little blessing that I can get and take that blessing and hopefully... It could bring healing to my daughter. She doesn't get defensive. She doesn't talk back. She doesn't get disrespectful. And of course, Jesus responds to this woman because of her faith. He marvels at this woman's faith and commands the demon to depart from her daughter. This is a valuable lesson for the disciples that even Gentiles can have extraordinary faith. Now we jump to event number two, where Jesus heals the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute. In Mark chapter 7, verse 31 through 37, 
Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd, privately he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So Jesus moves on from Tyre to Sidon. Now Sidon was another prominent city of Phoenicia. So he's going to big attractions for the Gentile people. Now this was at least another day's journey from Tyre. So Jesus's travel uh, makes it very clear that he was staying away from Galilee. He was avoiding the religious leaders and he was wanting to spend this time to be among the Gentiles to proclaim the good news to them and to bring healing to their lives. When you cross-reference this passage to Matthew 15, 29 through 31, when he's going through the mountain, he sat down. We're told in verse 30 of Matthew 15, great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. But in the midst of all of this healing, there's one individual that Mark mentions, and it's about this man who had this speaking impediment. Literally, he had a hard or difficult time to talk, and the people were begging Jesus to lay hands on this man to make intercession for him. So again, this is showing the faith that the Gentiles had in Jesus. Now, what, what Jesus does here is he just doesn't perform an open miracle with the crowd of people, as we're told that it was there in Matthew 15. Instead, he puts this man aside. He takes him aside privately, and he puts his finger in his ears after spitting and touches his tongue. Now, the interesting thing here is Jesus is wanting to have a personal encountership with this man. He just had one with that a Canaanite woman and her daughter who's kneeling at his feet and she's touching him and she's clinging on to him and he has a conversation with her and he marvels at her faith and now he's touching this man who's having a difficult time to speak. Now some commentaries mention this gesturing that Jesus uses and putting his fingers in the ears and stuff is gestures as a makeshift sign language. So what Jesus was doing here is he's touching each organ of this man. And as he's doing that, he's speaking to him in a way that this man understood. Now notice the phrase that Jesus uses when he's doing this in Mark 7, 34. It says, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is be opened. Now Ephatha is an Aramaic term. It's only used in Isaiah 35 verses five through six. So this deaf man, he was understanding what Jesus was doing but also what he was saying to him jesus commands the man when he says to be open it literally means to be loose to be unbarred to be set free from the bondage that he was under now in isaiah 35 when he cross references it says then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will sing for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert when you take a closer look at Mark 7.35, here's what's cool. Not only was this man's tongue released, so he was healed physically, but also indicates that this man received spiritual healing as well. That's what Jesus was bringing to this region. In Mark 7.36 and 37, when he charged him not to speak of these things, but of course, all the great things were happening. What Jesus was doing, they kept bringing more people who had needs 
to him. So after Jesus does that, he makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, and he moves on. Now we see in Matthew 15, 32 through 38, and Mark 8, 1 through 9, Jesus feeds the 4,000. Now we're, we're told here in Mark 8, verse 1, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he calls the disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Now, this account of the feeding of the 4,000 is very similar to the feeding of the 5,000 not long ago, if you go back to Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Now, Jesus, we're told here, which is so cool that we saw back in Matthew 14, again, explain the whole reason why he's there at Tyre and Sidon, is he has compassion for these people. Literally in Greek, he has this deep emotion for them. He is showing his disciples time and time again not to limit your love, not to underestimate what God can do, not to neglect an opportunity to do the work of God in the lives of people when you least expect it. We are told that these people have been with Jesus for three days. So he calls his disciples together and he presents them a dilemma. This was a test. Remember, he was testing the Canaanite woman just a few scriptures ago. Now he's testing his own disciples. He wanted to see if they would respond to provide substance to this crowd, not just in their in his spiritual teaching, but also meet their physical needs. And so the disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So instead of the disciples remembering back to the feeding of the 5,000, they're the ones that are challenging Jesus's dilemma by saying, this is impossible. How on earth do you expect to meet this particular need? Isn't that astonishing? You would think that they'd be like, well, do what you did with the 5,000, but they don't. So then Jesus responds to them saying, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. See, Jesus poses a question that reveals his intent. The disciples had seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. You go back to Matthew 15, 34. This time, Jesus asked his disciples to give up their own food. He's like, are you willing to do this? Are my disciples willing to show the same kind of compassion, this deep emotion for this crowd like I am? So this gesture by Jesus to tell the crowd to sit down implies a feast is coming. It's, it's not necessarily a way of, hey, get the crowd together in an assembly line and let's hand them some portion of food like a snack one by one. No, he's telling the families to sit together because they're about to enjoy a feast and so he takes the seven loaves he takes the fish and he gives thanks now jesus blesses the food in the feeding of the four thousand just like he's going to bless the food in mark chapter 14 in the upper room before he gives his body all of these things my friends points to what christ is going to ultimately give up what he's going to sacrifice what he's going to give because we know he's the bread of life He's living water. He's the light of the world. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Now, this phrase uh, in the verb broke in Eros tense, expressing a decisive act 
Whereas the verb gave, when they gave the food to the people, it literally means that it kept on giving. So Jesus kept on giving bread and he kept on giving fish for the disciples to distribute to the crowd. Once again, another miracle in front of the disciples of the power and the glory and the love of Jesus. So you remember this whole time when Jesus is going around Tyre and Sidon, he's avoiding Galilee, he's avoiding the religious leaders, he does these incredible miracles, he just feeds the 4,000, that's just men, not including women and children. So again, over 10,000 people, just like the feeding of the 5,000, thousands upon thousands, so a powerful lesson for the disciples and certainly showing these people that he is indeed the son of God. And then we're told in Matthew 15, verse 39, that Jesus sends the crowds away and he gets into a boat to the region of Magadon and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, Mark 8, verse 10, this region of Magadon, we're told in Matthew, Mark says it's the district of Dalmanutha. And so in verse 11 of Mark 8, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, asking for the sign. Now, back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus answers them, says, when it, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearances of the sun, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So here you have this odd combination of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are coming together because they're still enraged. Remember over that indictment that Jesus gave them that they were defiled hypocrites back in Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 23. So they've been trying to find Jesus. Of course, now he departs and he goes into the stick or to Dalmanutha. This is near Tiberias on the western side of the lake now. So they find him there and they still don't believe in the authority of Jesus, and they are attacking him. In essence, the religious leaders, they're literally debating over whether or not Jesus is fulfilling certain signs that they believe to be a sign. If you recall, in those days, a sign was, was like an authentication of an utterance. It was a way for someone to prove whether or not they were of God or not, like a prophet or a seer, a voice of God, a messenger of God. So all the signs up to this point that Jesus had been doing to them, it wasn't enough. They didn't consider those to be miracles. Therefore, they didn't consider that his authority that he says he had came from God. One commentary writes, in Mark, there is a distinction between a miracle, dunamis, and a sign, simeon. The former evidences God's presence and power in Jesus. An appeal for a miracle can be a legitimate expression of one's faith. But such an appeal is illegitimate if it arises out of unbelief, as was true of the Pharisees. Which explains in Mark 8, 12, that Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. He understands that no matter what he does, they are not going to respond favorably of him. So he was very troubled of their unbelief and, of course, their harsh rebellion. This is almost a reflection of God stating in Psalm 95, 10 through 11, where it writes, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, There are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, of course, what Jesus does is he exposes their hypocrisy. He uses weather. He uses the signs of weather and farming as a way to interpret what is to come. And so he uses that to say, just like you're able to predict the weather, you should be able to discern and predict these messianic signs that are coming that I am fulfilling because they're in 
the scriptures. And he says in Matthew 16, verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation. So remember, he calls them defiled hypocrites in Mark 7. And so now he's calling out their false interpretation of a sign. He's rebuking them once again, and he's not falling for their demands. The only necessary and ultimate sign of authentication of Jesus' authority is going to be what? His resurrection. He says so in Matthew 12, 39 and 40. And so, of course, he rebukes them, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he leaves and gets into a boat, we're told in Mark 8, 13, and he goes to the other side. So what did we learn on today's podcast, my friends? Well, several things. As I mentioned earlier, the theme of this entire time was notice how Jesus approached the castaways. He goes out of his way and he takes his disciples. And once again, we learn so much from the disciples as well because we still carry these same type of behaviors as well. We know that God is sometimes calling us to do certain things and it's going to be a little bit problematic or troubling for us or difficult or, dare I say, inconvenient. And yet we need to do it. And there's blessings awaiting us when we do that. Jesus goes into an area of castaways. He brings healing. He restores them. We see the humility. We see the faith that many of these people that you and I would least expect to have faith and they have faith. And I think we need to apply that in our culture today. Oftentimes we can judge, again, a book by its cover. We can assume that these people don't know what we know. We can assume, oh, no, God's not calling me to go do that. Oh, that's too far away. Somebody else can do that. We can make excuses. Jesus shows the disciples. And not only that, but when you come to the feeding of the 4,000, remember they neglected to realize that Jesus had already done this miracle before. And this is actually lesser in number than the feeding of the 5,000. And yet they didn't know how uh, they were going to feed these people. How can one man do this? Jesus was that one man. And it shows you again their lack of faith. And yet Jesus uses what they had to give to the poor. And that's a lesson that we need to take, even what little we have. We can't be sitting back thinking, well, I have very little. I don't have that much money. I don't really have these impressive gifts. What can God do to use me? Uh, I will let somebody more powerful, more significant, if you will, to do the work. No, you're significant. You have gifts that God has given you to use. Show the compassion. Have that deep emotion for people around you, even people that you don't think you have a lot in common with. Let God use you, my friends, where you're at. Stop neglecting that. And there are going to be people who are going to challenge. They're going to have objections against Christianity, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees had about Jesus. Don't back down. Don't run away from some of these opportunities. Engage. As you continue to learn the scriptures here on this podcast, check out a lot of the books that I have written uh, on standstrongministries.org to readily give an answer to those who ask you for the hope of the reason that is within you, 1 Peter 3.15. Always drop a note, send me some questions, some challenges. Maybe you're in a situation that you find very troublesome and you need some guidance of how to get out of it or how to approach certain situations, maybe in your workplace or at school or in your marriage or with a child who you raised in the faith, but they've abandoned it. I have a great book that covers a lot of those things called Abandoned Faith, Why Millennials Are Walking Away and How to Lead Them Home. But ultimately, we need to make sure as Christians that we have love for people. Let's not make excuses that... I'm not valuable. Uh, God can't use me. I don't know enough like you know, Jason. Don't be using in that kind of stuff. When you, when you see God's hand in someone's life and you're looking at this person, oftentimes, and that's my testimony, who am I? I am who I am by the grace of God, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. 
And the same truth applies to you, my friends. Thanks for tuning in on today's podcast, and I can't wait to see you next time. May the Lord continue to bless you. And until then, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening, and keep standing strong in the Word of God.